challenge a new generation of young Americans to a season of service, to act on your idealism by helping troubled children, keeping company with those in need, reconnecting our torn communities. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. It is time to reawaken this industrial giant. You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you might find. How are you? It is great to see and great to be with every single one of you, especially if you're our guest here today. We're really, really delighted to have all of you. We've been praying that God would meet you in the place where you are and would do something special and even extraordinary in your heart and in your life today. We're really glad to have all of you. Wednesday, September 12th, uh, my wife Dana and our son Silas and Joshua, our daughter Malia, scooped up our brand new daughter, Kenzie Addis, from the orphanage where she's been living in Ethiopia. That is the very moment that she walked out of the orphanage door and we scooped her up. And I apologize that the picture is blurry, but my Ethiopian friend Jonas was running my American camera and, well, that's what we got. And I think they're all kind of blurry and there's mom and daughter embracing for the first time on that day and... It was a long embrace, and then Blessed Kinsey made the rounds. Joshua squeezing her sister, and then Malia squeezing her sister, and they're beaming. And Silas, well, he's always beaming, isn't he? And there we are. And it was a fantastic, special, special trip marked by numerous God moments. Uh, I'm going to tell you about some of them. I'm going to try to tell you about some of them a little later in this message. We spent time with the birth families of uh, all four of our adopted kids, and it was just remarkable. It was just remarkable. And in the last 10 days or so, I've really been sort of swept away with this notion of, oh my gosh, I'm the dad of eight kids. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And I think God is sort of laughing at me uh, because I'm certain that he remembers really, really well uh, my very bold declaration at the ripe old age of 26 years old as Dan and I were about to get married where I proclaimed to her that we were going to have two kids. (laughs) Two kids. And God's just like, ha ha, show you, buddy. God has a great sense of humor doesn't he? We're talking about Jesus for president, which just for the record is not at all about politics, but really at the very core is, get this, is all about Jesus Christ transforming your life and transforming my life and transforming the life of every single person on planet earth, which then, watch this, has a transformative effect on every single thing in our world, including government and politics. 
And that happens because, you see, when Jesus gets a hold of someone, like a real, genuine, authentic hold of someone's life, whether it's yours or whether it's mine or whether it's the person sitting next to you, when Jesus gets a hold of someone's life, that is never, ever a static deal. It can't ever just be the status quo. Because you see, once Jesus Christ, who is and always will be the Savior of the world, when he truly gets a hold of a life, stuff changes. Stuff shifts in tectonic fashion. Stuff shifts. Stuff changes. Transformation occurs. Old stuff is out. New stuff is in. And there is no more status quo whenever Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, gets a hold, an authentic hold of someone's life. Lots and lots and lots of you have experienced that firsthand, and you know exactly what that's like. We're praying that all of you experience that firsthand. We want that for every single person on planet Earth. That's why we gather like this, as a matter of fact. And you see, if we're talking about Jesus for president, I think one of the really great questions around that notion is who would Jesus' vice presidential running mate be? Right, like if you're sort of toying with this whole notion of Jesus for president, the next logical question is, well, who's his running mate? Who's his number two on the ticket? And around here, we kind of like to have fun, and so we took uh, a video camera and a microphone and that question up to the MSU campus, and we put the poor folks up there on the spot, asking them to tell us who they thought Jesus' vice presidential running mate would be, and, well, here's what they told us. Um, um, I have no idea. Um, oh, um, it's one of those things I didn't think I'd have to think about. Um, 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 that's, that's a hard question. Um, I have no idea. Paul? Paul? Abraham. Like the Pope or someone? I think Moses. Spirit, the Bobcat. Martin Luther King. Buddha. <sighs> Jerry Garcia. Jerry Garcia. Jerry Garcia. He would pick Madame Curie. Leonardo DiCaprio, obviously. Morgan Freeman. I think Morgan Freeman would be a perfect vice president. No, I'd want to say Morgan Freeman. Would, would Jesus even be able to run for president? I don't think he's electable. He's like an, he's an Arab socialist. <laughs> I would say he wouldn't run for president. I think Jesus is smart enough to not run for politics. I don't know that he'd need a running mate, to be honest. He's, he's Jesus. If Jesus was running for president, he'd pick Obama, of course. Dude, you don't even want me to get into this. I feel like Jesus would pick his cousin Ted. Jesus is cool, so I'm guessing he would pick Michael Jackson. Oh, definitely Justin Bieber. He's pretty religious, and as far as that goes, you have the press crowd. John Tester. Mother Teresa. He would choose just like some guy off the street and be like, you're going to be my vice president. Yep. So that's an unschooled ordinary man. Yep. Uh, me? <laughs> Jerry Garcia. They don't even know who the heck he is. They're like 12 years old. They... Tough question, isn't it? 
And you all know that in any United States presidential election, the vice presidential choice, it's like a really big deal. We watched it play out with Mitt Romney's choosing Paul Ryan as his running mate, didn't we? You remember very, very well, I'm sure, the speculation for all the months leading up to him actually making his choice. Who in the world was it going to be? Would it be Chris Christie or Bobby Jindal or Tim Pawlenty or Rob Portman or Marco Ruby or David Petraeus? Maybe like the wild card choice was Condoleezza Rice. Would it be Condoleezza? Everyone and their brother had an opinion about who he would or who he should choose, why he should or why he would choose or not choose them. You remember. And then about four years ago, the same speculative guessing game played out as Barack Obama whittled his choices down, eventually landing on Joe Biden as his number two on the ticket. And then some of you might remember back just this summer, just a few months back, the media was bandying about how President Obama was actually considering dumping Biden from the ticket and asking Hillary Clinton to replace Biden as his vice presidential running mate. Reportedly over a lunch, Hillary Clinton turned the president down, but who knows if that's really actually what happened. The media told us as much. And I bring this up because for just a moment, I want you to actually set yourself in the shoes of someone who is being considered as a presidential nominee's vice presidential running mate. Like, set yourself in their shoes. Imagine that you're on a presidential candidate's short list of people being considered for the office of vice president of the United States of America. What would that be like? How would that feel to you? I speculate that on one hand, you'd really feel quite honored, wouldn't you? Oh my gosh, you mean somebody somewhere, maybe a bunch of somebody's somewhere, thinks so highly of me that they actually are asking me to help them lead this country of ours. Like, whoa, right? And then on the other hand, you'd feel really humbled, right? There you are. You're just minding your own business, doing whatever it is that you do. And then out of nowhere, one day the phone rings or you get that email and you're like, whoa, little old me, vice presidential material. Who'd ever guessed? Needless to say, being selected as someone's vice presidential running mate, that would be an incredibly esteeming, turn of events, wouldn't it? Perhaps one of the most esteeming things that would ever happen to a person. Just imagine even making the short list of potentials. That would, in and of itself, buoy your spirits a lot. After all, most of us, when we look in the mirror and when we're entirely honest, we would admit to experiencing a whole lot more stinging rejection than esteeming selection, wouldn't we? Most of us, when we're entirely honest, would admit to experiencing a whole lot more stinging rejection than esteeming selection. It's just how it goes in this world, isn't it? Remember that time when you had that fantastic idea for your enterprise, for your workplace, and it was going to revolutionize your industry, and so you took your very great idea into your boss, and he or she just dismissed it out of hand. Almost like, get out of my office. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You are so stupid. Go away. Remember that time? Or how about the time when that degree program that you worked so hard for so long to get into? Remember that time when they sent you that really cordial letter that was printed on that really nice paper? You know, the kind with like the cotton fibers woven right into it. It's really nice. It's almost like a letter printed on a shirt. So nice. It was a nice letter letting you know that apparently you hadn't worked hard enough. Remember that? 
Or how about the coach? Remember that time? That coach? And you thought you were in with that coach. You thought he or she really liked you. You thought you were going to make the team. And then there was the list. And your name wasn't anywhere on it. Cut. Gone. Has been. Washed up. Or what about the time when your spouse, remember? The one to whom you'd pledged your love and loyalty and faithfulness, the one who had pledged the very same in return to you. Remember how they found someone new, someone younger, someone prettier, someone smarter, and you're out, and she's in, or he's in, and marriage is finished. It's over. All those hopes, all those dreams just dashed on the rocks. Done. And in a world where we experience way, way more than our share of rejection, we all know it. We imagine for just a moment that it would feel really, really good for someone to call us up and say, hey, would you please be my vice presidential running mate? And you're like, yes, finally I caught a lucky break. Acceptance, affirmation, someone cares, someone recognizes me for, yes, I'm in. But I'm telling you today in all candor, as affirming, as incredibly affirming as it might be to be selected as someone's vice presidential running mate, I want to take you to a passage of scripture from the Bible, from God's word, in which God, through his apostle Paul, declares that what he has in store for every single one of us, not just a select few, but rather for every single one of us, and how what he has for us blows being chosen out of someone's vice presidential running mate right out of the water. Just blows it right out of the water, like blows it sky high out of the water. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. You can turn there, or you can follow along right here. Paul writes this, and this is God's plan. It's quite definitive, isn't it? Quite declarative, quite certain. Not a lot of question marks in that statement. And this is God's plan. Here it comes. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Pregnant stuff. Both are part of the same body. Both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. And by God's grace and mighty power, I've been given the privilege of serving him, serving that God by spreading this good news. Incredibly pregnant couple of verses, and you can summarize those really, really simply, and it's like this. God wants you to be with him. God has plans for you to be with him. He has plans to bless you beyond your wildest expectation. And he wants you to be with him. He has an inheritance for you because he wants to make you one of his children. He wants you to be with him. And so you see, it's a nice thing 
for a couple of people every four or eight years to be selected to run as vice president of the United States. But God's word declares quite emphatically, this is God's plan, as Paul writes, that every single person, to every single person who has ever lived, that he has a plan that cannot and will not ever be topped. Put the vice president thing like down here, and then put the, God wants you, my arm isn't reach high enough, I'm kind of short. God wants you to be with him all the way up there through the ceiling, through the roof, and like, keep going. Vice president here, God wants you to be with him. They don't even compare. Not even, not even close. God wants you to be with him. And the kind of world we're living in today where we're in one day, where we're out the next, we're on the team one day, we're off the next, where we're voted out, where we're voted off, where we're wrong sized and wrong crowd and wrong address and demoted and altogether too often demeaned. This reality that God wants us, God wants you to be with him is the very best news we could possibly imagine, isn't it? God wants you you, you, to be with him. The sovereign, supreme God of the universe, maker of heaven and earth, the one who breathed life into your lungs, the God who gave order to all of this wants you to be with him. And maybe some of you today, you're just in a spot where you really need to personalize that you can. You could say it this way, God wants me to be with him. God wants me to be with him. This is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the exact same body. That's the body of Christ, by the way. Both enjoy the promise of blessings. Why? Because they belong to Christ Jesus for no other reason then they belong to Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a non-Jew. It doesn't matter your pedigree, your background, your history, your past behavior, your past sin, your misdeeds, your missteps, your misbehavior. God wants to be with you. He wants to make you, every single one of us, one of his kids. And this being with him, by your being made one of his children, doesn't just come to pass because you say it or you think it or you want it to be. It's only made possible by, Paul's very, very clear, by your belief in what? The good news. It's only made possible by your belief in the good news. What's that? What is this good news? news. I want to show it to you from Jesus' own mouth. Very famous verses. Some of the most famous ever from Jesus' own lips. John three sixteen and 17. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. That's Jesus. So that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal forever life with him and God sent his son into the world not to judge the world and that's amazing 
Because there's a whole lot of people walking around this world today who think God's only role, God's only responsibility, the only thing God is up to is judging everything. That God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but what? To save the world through him. That's the good news. Some, me included, would even call it great news, and it is, isn't it? And Jesus starts right off with this good news, go back if you would, by speaking our language, for God loved, that's our language right there, isn't it? God loved the world so much. Like that catches us up, doesn't it? He loved the world so much. He's not like talking about the globe. He's talking about you, humanity, you. And see, we're all real busy sort of wearing the word love out, aren't we? We wear that word thin and we wear it out because all of us all the time, me included, we talk about all these really silly things that we love, right? We all do it, right? We overuse the word. I actually had a woman this past week tell me how incredibly much she loved cats, and I'm sorry if you're a cat lover, but I, like, like those two words, love and cat, in a sentence, they, you just, they don't go together, in my humble opinion. The context of our conversation was uh, our family was on an airplane from uh, Amsterdam, which is in the Netherlands, all the way to Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's about a 10-hour plane ride, and it is a horrible plane ride. And there was a cat in the cabin of the aircraft. Some nice woman brought a cat in one of those little carriers onto the plane. And it meowed incessantly for 10 hours. Seriously. And so as we were getting off the aircraft, I happened to be walking next to all of these wonderful flight attendants who took great care of us. Uh, for those 10 hours, and they were talking amongst themselves, like, who would be crazy enough to bring a cat on that trip? Like, why would you take a cat to the Netherlands? And all, the, you know, all this stuff. And I overheard their conversation, and it's just the kind of guy I am, and so I sort of interject myself into the conversation. I said, yeah, in my opinion, the only good cat is a dead cat. <laughs> I think that's in the Bible somewhere, by the way. And she responds, one of them, with, oh, I love cats. I just don't love them on airplanes. I'm like, oh, my gosh, love cats. No. (laughs) If you love cats, I just want you to know that I love you. (laughs) And so does God. And um, don't leave our church, please. (laughs) And so we're busy overusing the word love. We're draining it of its original punch and power, Jesus grabs the word and he sets it up in such a way that it ought to recapture all our attention and it does, right? Because Jesus' declaration of God's love in John 3, 16 and 17, it really screams out, God's love won't let you go. God wants you to be with him. And it's like God has handcuffed himself to you with his love, handcuffed himself to you with his love. He's the only one with the key. 
You can't, you needn't win or do anything to win his affection, to win his love. You already have all of it as much as you could possibly get. And if you can't win his affection, well, then you can't lose his affection either. He's chosen you. He pursues you. you he loves you forever and ever and ever and always. He loves you. You're part, as a matter of fact, of his grand redemptive plan, his story that's been set in motion from the very beginning of all time. God loves you. He wants you to be with him. And that's one part of this good news. It's one part of this good news, but there's more to this good news. For God loved the world so much, what? He gave. And who did he give? His one and only son. His name is Jesus. Why? So that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. And I've heard in my lifetime more than one person say, they don't need God to give anyone or anything for them. Maybe you've been a person who's said that. Maybe at some point in your life you said, you know, I, 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 just, I don't need God. I'm fine. I'm okay. I've led a good life. I haven't done anything that bad. I love my family. I haven't embezzled. I pay my taxes. I don't need God to give me anything, let alone his son. Maybe you've been a person who's said that. And that sounds good. But upon the very careful and close examination of your heart, what you'll find is very, very tragic. And it's that you're not fine. None of us are. Our hearts are diseased. Our hearts are corrupt. When, as a matter of fact, we leave our hearts to their own devices, they don't naturally draw closer to God, no. Rather, they move far, far away from God. And just to prove that, I want to try with you for just a moment a little heart examination, if you'll humor me. I just want, for just a moment, we're going to, together in this little exercise, measure our hearts against just four of the big Ten Commandments. You know, in the Bible, God gives these big Ten Commandments, you know, and we're supposed to keep them, and so, and so we're just going to measure our hearts in the natural condition they're in against the big Ten Commandments. That would be kind of easy, right? So let's start with this one. Uh, Don't steal. Exodus 20, 15. Don't steal. So how's your heart in the stealing thing? Have you ever stolen anything? Anything. Like a paperclip from your office. You're a thief. Ever stolen a pencil from a friend? You're a thief. Ever taken a really good idea from a coworker, claimed it as your thief? Right? So, okay, one down. You all right? How's your heart? Number two, how about this one? Don't lie, Exodus 20, 16. Don't lie. All right? Just for the record, anyone who says they haven't lied, just did. <laughs> Liar. Two down. How's your heart? All right, let's get a little steeper here. Don't commit adultery. It's a big one. Exodus 20, 14. Don't commit adultery. And we think on that one, and then we remember the time in the New Testament when Jesus said, even by looking at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. 
adulterer, big A, right? Okay, three out of four, your heart okay? Still okay? How about this one? Don't murder. Ah, that should be really easy, right? I've never murdered anyone. But there's kind of a twist because another time in the New Testament, Jesus equates murder with what? Anger. Yeah, and he says it this way. Anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. Which means just for the record that you may or may not have annihilated a few dozen fellow motorists even on your way to church here today. Like mowing them down. Just four of ten. Six more to go, but we could probably stop there, right? How'd you score? Little heart examination. And it ain't good. Mine's not either. It ain't good. And see, because God just can't overlook our sin, and that's what it is. He can't just overlook our sin because you see he's holy and he's perfect and he's righteous and he's just, he can't just gloss over our sin and call it, oh, it's just a little innocent mistake. He can't do it. And because he can't just gloss it over, Jesus Christ, who is the only, one and only son of God, he does this amazing thing. He offers to exchange hearts with you. He's gonna take your diseased an infected and corrupted heart, and he's going to put his new heart of flesh. You have a heart of stone, and he's going to replace it with his heart of flesh. He takes your sin, and he takes my sin, and he takes all our sin, and he places it upon himself, our sickness and our disease and our corruption, and he pronounces us healthy, and he pronounces us innocent, and he gives us his transplanted new heart of flesh. And that invitation stands wide open to any person walking planet Earth. Anyone. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter your misdeeds, your misbehavior, your missteps, your miscalculations. But you see, that heart transplant only becomes possible through your confession of your need for him. It's you coming to the end of yourself saying, I'm not okay. I can't bridge the divide that exists between me and God. I need him. I must have him. It takes him. And so it's like you're saying, yes, Jesus, I get it. That's me. I need you. I believe in you. I turn to you for help and salvation. I turn to you for a brand new heart. And I'm going to do something right now that I don't normally do at this point in our time together. And I'm going to ask you to take your stuff and set it aside and close your eyes and bow your heads. And I'm just going to ask you to get real still and real quiet, you and God, right now. Just get in a posture of prayer, of listening to him. Because I don't want this moment to get by us without you having a chance to declare your belief in that good news of Jesus Christ for the first time in your life.
But some of us in this room, in that moment, the last few minutes as we've been talking about the corruption and the disease and the sin of our heart, that you've come to an awareness that you've been trying to do this alone. You've been trying to earn your way to God. And all of a sudden, it just got real clear to you that you can't do it and that you must have Jesus. You need him to be your savior. And what's true today is his offer of love and salvation as redemption. It's a free, entirely free gift to you. It costs God everything. It costs Jesus everything, but it's free to you today. And you right now, if that's the desire of your heart, you can declare your saving belief in God by praying along with me a prayer that goes just like this. You can pray this right where you're sitting. Nothing magical or mystical about these words. It's all about the posture of your heart. It's a prayer that goes like this. God, I'm sorry. For way, way too long, I've kept the door to my heart closed to you and I'm not doing that anymore. I'm opening my heart wide. I want your heart inside of me. And by faith in this moment, I gratefully receive your gift of salvation through the heart transplant that you're offering me right here, right now. You're my Lord, you're my Savior, you're my boss, you're my everything. And I thank you, Jesus, with everything in me for coming to earth, for living, for dying, for rising from the dead. And thank you, Jesus, for bearing my sin. Thank you, Jesus, for giving me a new heart for giving me this gift of eternal life. Here I am, Jesus. And if you're a person here today, every head is bowed, every eye is closed. If you're a person who for the first time is stepping into faith in Jesus Christ, you're declaring your belief in the good news of Jesus Christ for the first time today, I want you to know that's the biggest decision of your whole life. It's the hinge point of your entire existence, as a matter of fact. Everything else in your life from here on out swings on this decision. This is the defining moment of your life. And if that's you, I'm going to ask you to tell me that you made that decision. Nobody's looking around this room. It's just you, me, and God right now. If you prayed with me just then to declare your belief in the good news of Jesus, would you just be real bold and lift your hand and lock eyes with me right now? You can do it right now. Yeah, right there. Yes, absolutely. And in the back and in the middle, absolutely. And in the back, absolutely, yes. And to my right in the back, absolutely, yes. I'm standing with you. I'm agreeing with you. I'm affirming your decision with you. You can do that right now. Say, yes, Jesus. I need you. I can't save myself. You are my savior. Yes. Yes. And so, Jesus, we thank you so much for these who are stepping into belief in the good news for the very first time. We celebrate, we acknowledge the angels in heaven are celebrating Jesus. These prodigals who have come home to you. God, pour out your very best on every single one of them.
root them and found them and ground them in you. They are yours, Jesus. And we love you. Amen. And this text in Ephesians, it doesn't just finish with the good news peace for you. It finishes with an assignment, doesn't it? And this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. By the way, those of you who just stepped into life in Christ, one of the greatest inheritances that comes from God because of your relationship with him is the Holy Spirit who indwells you. Like, as you prayed that prayer, the Holy Spirit of God was filling your life. And the Holy Spirit of God is guiding you and leading you and steering you from that moment forward. Pay very, very close attention to the Holy Spirit of God inside of you. Cultivate your sensitivity to the Holy Spirit of God inside of you. He will serve you so well if you'll give him your undivided attention. Both are part of the same body. Both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. And then watch this. This is getting to assignment time. By God's grace and mighty power, I, Paul is who's writing this. He's talking about him, but this applies to all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. The assignment. Remember, when God gets a hold, a genuine hold of a life, stuff changes. Nothing's static. Everything shifts, and we get to getting busy with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And see, Jesus really isn't running for president of the United States, in case you're wondering. Jesus isn't organizing some other political party. Jesus isn't joining up with the Green Party or the Tea Partiers. He's not selecting, as a matter of fact, vice presidential running mates. But Jesus is inviting you and me to something so much bigger, which is for us to be a new kind of people, a good news, gospel kind of people, a party really of an entirely different sort whose politics are an extension of everything that Jesus came to make us into and about. We're the church. We're gospel of Jesus Christ people. We're active participants in all the blessings that come from him by virtue of our position as one of his followers which means we embody his kingdom, we embody the gospel, we live this out. Bringing the kingdom of God to earth just as it is in heaven. You and I are to be little Christ's, little Jesus's. People who put flesh on Jesus in the world today. That's our job, church. And when you think about it, that's a powerful thing. Because you are the only Jesus that some people might ever see or ever encounter. You and I, every single day as we head out into life and all that that entails... We're given this high responsibility, this very high privilege, Paul writes of, to tangibly demonstrate the grace of God to people all around us every single day. 
tangibly demonstrate the grace of God. Tangibly demonstrate the grace of God. Tangibly demonstrate the grace of God. Are you about that, church? I watched with some amazement. I was so incredibly proud of our kids, Joshua and Silas and Malia, as they did that very thing on this trip that we just took to Ethiopia over the past 10 days. And what pleased me to the bottom of my heart and soul was that I didn't have to nudge them, I didn't have to prompt them, I didn't have to coach them. They just got about it. They thought, how are we going to tangibly demonstrate the grace of God to our family and to our friends as we head to Ethiopia? Josh and Malia, they called their family and they told them we were coming a couple of weeks before we left and they were amazed and astounded. When we got there, their family actually told us, we can't believe that you actually came to visit us. We never thought we would see them again. And it was an incredibly powerful reunion weeping and celebrating and feasting and before we left I watched Joshua and Malia they worked their darn hardest they gathered as much money as they possibly could so that they could tangibly demonstrate the grace of God to their family and I think they handed over something like 18 months worth of their family's earnings in Ethiopia 18 months, and it wasn't that much on this side, a staggeringly small amount on this side, over there, an enormous sum, some 18 months, and they handed it over, tangibly demonstrating the grace of God to their family, and I didn't coach it, I didn't lead it, I didn't demand it, they just did it, the Holy Spirit inside of them prompting them, and Silas, to our knowledge, doesn't have any birth family in Ethiopia, but he does have one very, very good friend whose name is Belini. And Silas got into the orphanage when he was a young boy. His friend Belini, who's his same age, didn't get into the orphanage, and it's a game changer. The one who got into the orphanage got adopted. The one who didn't get into the orphanage is stuck in Ethiopia, eking out an existence. He's 17 or 18 years old, and he's fully responsible for himself. He has to get his own meals, like find them. He has to get himself to school. He has to find where the money to pay for school is going to come from, clothing, shelter. And he's just eking, eking, eking it out. And he's such a delightful boy. The guy who ran the orphanage that Josh Silas and Malia in went to great lengths to make sure that Belini was going to be at his house when we arrived there. And Silas didn't know that Belini was going to be there. And when we walk through the gate, and these are 17 or 18 year old boys, right? They don't weep. But the embrace and the weeping was something I'll never forget as long as I live. Silas was so worried, so concerned for his friend's well-being and just to set his eyes and to hug him, affirmed, okay, he's okay. And Belini came with our family, came to the hotel where we were staying and basically was part of our family for three or four days. 
About a year ago, Silas made sure that Bellini had a bicycle. A bicycle over the last year got flat tires and broken brakes, and so Silas Bellini took the bike to get it fixed, and Bellini needed a phone so that he could communicate, and Silas made sure that Bellini had a phone. Silas made sure that Bellini had the school supplies he needed. And then before we left, Josh and Silas, they cleaned out every, they got this big, the biggest suitcase they could possibly find at our house and they stuffed it, I mean stuffed it, with all the clothes and all the shoes and all the stuff that they don't wear and don't need and don't fit anymore and like great stuff and they loaded it up and they handed that over to Silas's dear friend, Bellini. Tangibly demonstrating the grace of God. And the trip went way, way too fast and next thing we knew it was time to take Bellini back and it was time for us to go. As we were dropping Bellini off at the place where he lives, he sort of pulled on my shirt sleeve and said, hey, come, I want you to see my room. And I didn't want to see his room. But I I went and we entered in through the front of a restaurant that I promised none of you would even think about eating in. A horrible place and we wound through the back and he's leading us I'm like where are we going this is getting bad back here and he took us into his room and it was smaller than any bathroom in your house and it's like damp and I'm like what it's like he's showing us his bed makeshift bed little table makeshift table and there's school su- supplies and everything's damp and wet and he says this is my box of clothes right a cardboard box or tattered cardboard box that keeps his clothes in there school stuff here and he sleeps over here and there on the wall is a giant picture of Jesus I'm like why why is everything wet in here what the heck and I and I look up and I'm like oh yeah that would explain it It, it's a old 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 tarp and it's got this giant hole in it and it's the rainy season and so the water just runs in and he's 17 or 18 years old and that's his home tangibly demonstrating the grace of God and Silas and well now a few other people around here are working on how to get Bellini a new place to live and I think we probably got that handled by now which is a great thing it looks different in Ethiopia tangibly demonstrating the grace of God What's it look like in your life with the people in your world? The person cubicle next to yours? The person you share a locker with? The kid in the class that sits next to you? What's it look like for you to tangibly demonstrate the grace of God? Church, that's our job. That's our role. It's God's best for all of our lives. And Jesus says, come on, be about it church don't just get all caught up and consumed in all this busyness and all this life and all this other stuff just get about it tangibly demonstrating the grace of God to everybody in your world whether they're in Ethiopia or whether they're across your back fence it's who we are church I'm in I'm going to be about it. I'm going to do everything I can to be about it. Will you? Will you? 
I invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads if you would and would you just go to prayer I'm going to pray a very short and a very simple prayer over all of us God, every moment of every single day, would you compel us to tangibly demonstrate your grace to every person we meet or encounter or work with or live with or share an office with or work out at the gym with. May we actually be little Christ, tangibly demonstrating the grace of God. We love you, Jesus. We worship you and we give ourselves fully to your service. And it's in your name we pray this. And everyone agreed together and said,